I'm Fearless Fred, comic book creator, radio personality, and dungeon master extraordinaire. On my podcast, Issue Zero, we'll explore all the things that used to get you beat up in school. From Conan the Barbarian to Wonder Woman, we'll look at the history and future of the fandom universe. So join me as we journey through galaxies far, far away. Issue Zero is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You can also find us and listen on demand at CuriousCast.ca. The Morning News with Sue D.L. and Andrew Schultz on 770 CHQR. Seven oh nine on the morning news with more information coming out on the LRT Green Line this week. We wanted to touch base with Ward Three Councillor Jyoti Gondek and find out her thoughts on how the new plan for the new transit line will affect businesses in the area, especially along Center Street north of downtown. Good morning, Councillor Gondek. Good morning, Andrew. How are you? Good, thank you. Well, it, at this point, I know it's early on. Do we have any idea of how much land will be taken up with this new plan for the line? Well, unfortunately, I had to miss a portion of the meeting to go to a police commission. But from the things that I did see that day, um, there's going to be a lot of impact to businesses, especially along Center Street. So we're still waiting to see how they plan to accommodate vehicular traffic as well as pedestrians and bike traffic so that the retail sector can stay thriving. Yeah, and that's the point, right? I mean, we want the least impact for businesses when this construction does finally start. And if you've ever driven up Center Street, there is not a lot of room on the road, from the road to the curb to the businesses at the side of the street. So, boy, that's it, it's going to be a mess potentially. Well, it's going to be tricky to get right. Um, you also have to recognize that there's going to have to be some parking that's accommodated if, you know, not a full lane. Um, I don't know how they're going to do it. We're waiting to see. Yeah, we've seen this before, closures of, of major thoroughways. And I think you think back most recently to 17th Avenue Southwest and that, uh, you know, impacted many, many businesses. Have you heard anything from business owners on uh, Center Street at this point? I know it's early. The thing that we've heard consistently from business owners um, as that north alignment has been planned over time is you have to do it well so that we don't lose our traffic, um, our customer traffic that's coming in. And it's possible to do. You can absolutely do this well. You can actually bring more people to those businesses if it's done well. But if we are taking up massive amounts of land just to get a train to barrel through there, that doesn't stop, that doesn't allow for, you know, people to be walking up to those shops, that's problematic. But the team has heard loud and clear that we are quite concerned about the public realm and they are planning to come back and show us some design work. Jody, what will the impact be on properties downtown? Will there be a big impact? Well, right now, um, there are plans near Eau Claire that um, contemplate a portal coming up between several buildings that are absolutely beautiful. And these building owners were told at the time of development permit that you have to create beautiful lobbies that can be visually permeable permeable, um, so that people that are on the street can experience the beauty of the lobby. And they've done a great job. We're proposing having a portal surfacing right there, which is going to do a lot to their property values and not a lot of positives. So we got to get back and look at what we can do differently. What's that mean, a portal? So that's where the train would surface. Okay. And so you're going to have to have barriers around it. And that is, that's going to devastate the experience that we've got on those streets right now. 
to a certain extent, uh, Councillor Gondick, is is it a can't-win situation? Because in the end, you're not going to make everybody happy. Yeah, absolutely. You're not going to make everybody happy. There's going to be solutions that um, are going to be disappointing to a lot of people. But we've got to look at this quite seriously. If you're impacting property values downtown, that's impacting the amount of revenue generation potential of the city. Because remember, we rely on property taxes. You're also looking at investor confidence. If you're going to build something that's going to depreciate these properties, are they really going to want to stick around Calgary? So we have to get this right. So, I mean, what are your thoughts on it at this point in time? I know you, I'm in your ward, so pushing for transportation up in the north end of the city for sure, needed, obviously. Is it just all about public consultation and getting great ideas and thinking outside the box to make sure that this works the way it should and properly? Well, I appreciate that question too, Sue. I mean, right now, um, we've got the north back in the plan for phase one with what they're calling BRT enhancements little disappointing to me because we don't have rapid transit up in the north, so I don't know how you're going to enhance something that doesn't exist. Mm. So if the point is to use $100 million as seed money to get some sort of a rapid transit option, that's great. It's not enough right now. In the end, though, with this new plan, the cost savings, we talked to Councillor Keating yesterday, the cost savings, I guess there's no other way to do it at this point and uh, kind of outstanding on what it would have been with the, um, you know, majority underground plan we were looking at. Um, this is the new plan and this is the most feasible plan at this time. It is the most feasible plan at this time, but it doesn't mean that we've looked at everything and it doesn't mean that the design is final right now. Remember, we changed some things in this iteration that we hadn't done in the past. So I don't buy the argument that nothing can change and we can't do better. Sometimes a solution that you don't see right now could surface in the next couple of weeks. So what's the scoop? This plan goes to full decision by March. Is that correct? Is there still time then to, you know, for, it sounds like you're not fully pleased with it, obviously. Um, Maybe other councillors are feeling the same way. Could this still be stopped and changed? There is a bit of a process right now to take the feedback that we gave at that workshop and make some of those changes that we were proposing. You will not see whole-scale changes, but you may see improvements based on the feedback that we gave. But it's my impression that in March, when the team comes back, this is the alignment we're going to get. I'll tell you what, again, not heard the end of this issue and engagement to, to follow. Thanks for your time this morning, Jyoti. Thanks for having me on. It's Ward 3 Councillor Jyoti Gondek. And you can still go to the city's website and uh, have your voice heard. They're still asking for public input and thoughts on the green line and what it looks like and what they might be able to do to make sure that it is efficient, as as efficient as possible. But, I mean, we see the texts coming in. There's still, there, you know, a couple already just saying the north alignment makes no sense. Why not use rail line and a feeder system? Uh, somebody else texting in to say there'd be enough money for the transit system if they didn't give a giant corporate giveaway for a new arena. So you're oh. never going to please everybody uh this is an ongoing debate and and more will continue no doubt i just you know in the end though i'm i am now to the point and this might be old man schultz coming through <laughs> i'm frustrated like jody gondek is as uh, she's saying there, there might be a better plan in a couple weeks so i'm frustrated but at the same time um you can either do something or get off the pot if you know where i'm going with this i do because you know what a plan is better than no plan and not to say we don't want to do it right but how many more engagements and consultations are we going to have with an underserved uh, city when it comes to transportation it is frustrating to, to no end 
Getting an update on the coronavirus situation, we're hearing thousands infected in China, millions upon millions quarantined. Of course, many, many cases around the world, three confirmed in our nation, and China counting over 170 dead from the virus. With an update, we're with Dr. Craig Jenny, researcher and infectious disease specialist at the Coming School of Medicine. Good morning, Dr. Jenny. We've uh, touched base uh, earlier, I, I believe last week. Uh, are things playing out as you expected, or does this seem a little more severe than anticipated? I, I think this is actually playing out much the, the way people anticipated last week. I think perhaps a, a, a few extra people infected that maybe we were counting on, but this is spreading in much the same way that, that many viruses do. Dr. Jenny, looking at around the world, we're seeing cases pop up in various countries. We've got a few here in Canada now. Do we need to be concerned or is there sort of a, a little bit too much uh, fear mongering perhaps going on? Yeah, I think there's there's definitely too much fear mongering. I mean, this is a condition that is uh, important and we should be watching for it, but there is absolutely no need to panic, uh, even at this point. We anticipate seeing people uh, show up around the world. Anybody that had traveled through this area is at risk. Um, the, the next big step we're looking for, though, is the spread of this virus, for example, within Canada. So a spread from a person who brought the virus here to another Canadian who, for example, hasn't traveled. But I guess a better safe than sorry. Is there a, a problem with being too cautious? No, I think Canada is actually doing everything they probably should at this point. I think it is important to be watching for it and to know where it is and how many cases there are. But there is no need to, to take additional steps of, for example, closing airports. Or I've seen a lot of discussion about temperature scanners at airports. I don't think they add a lot of value or security to the Canadian public. What is it that gets people so, you know, worked up about this? I mean, we get the flu in Canada every year. More people than this die of the flu regularly. So why are we so uh, worked up over this flu, the coronavirus? Yeah, I think it's really for two reasons. One is just the general unknown. Uh, people see or hear about a new virus and the, their mind instantly goes to Hollywood movies. Um, I think the second reason is really with this coronavirus, there's pretty much nothing we can do specifically to treat it. I think with other viruses like flu, we do not only have a couple medications if you get the disease, but we have approaches like vaccination. So I think people feel a little more empowered with diseases we know more about, such as flu, and a little more just, you know, at, at the mercy of the disease with these new ones like coronavirus. Something we've heard, and I believe you may have mentioned, and if we can break this down again, because we're seeing tons of images of people wearing the surgical masks, they are not going to be 100% effective. Is that right? Yeah, the, the surgical masks really don't do much. But the only thing they can do is stop somebody from coughing up large droplets of, of liquid. But as far as the virus, it's going to move right through a fabric mask like that with no problem at all. I know they're working on a vaccination, doctor. They say it won't be ready for more than a year. Is that too little too late? I, I don't know at this point. Uh, you know, within a year is still remarkably fast for a brand new disease to have a safe, effective vaccine out there. Uh, it's really going to depend on, on how long this sustains itself in the community or in the, the, the public. Uh, diseases like SARS, for example, had fortunately burnt themselves out in a matter of a few months with no additional cases, in which case the vaccine really wasn't going to uh, help in, in that situation. Dr. Jenny, we've all had the fever and the flu in our lives. I'm wondering, just from a general standpoint, at what point, if we're suffering for, through a fever or a flu, should we go to a doctor? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Unfortunately, there's nothing that's going to really separate this disease from the more common ones. So it, it really boils down to, have you traveled? Do you have any reason to suspect you've come in contact with a coronavirus? And then if it's you know, cough and cold, and it's not getting better, and it's progressively getting worse. Those are the the, the times to contact the healthcare professional. And the biggest piece with that is just to be open and honest with them about your travel and or exposure, and they're going to be able to direct you immediately to the appropriate tests. Doctor, thanks so much for joining us this morning and sharing your information. Always appreciate it. Anytime. Dr. Craig Janney, researcher and infectious disease specialist at the Cummings School of Medicine. Parental support, obviously vital to kids on the autism spectrum, and even more so when funding or programs for kids with special needs have been cut. Now there's a new program being offered by the University of Calgary's Workland School of Education. Its aim is to teach parents and children the social, emotional, and behavioral skills they need to thrive. To tell us all about it, we're joined this morning by Dr. Adam McCrimmon, a psychologist and associate professor from the Workland School of Education at the University of Calgary. Good morning, Dr. McCrimmon. Good morning, how are you? Great, thanks so much for joining us. Can you tell us why this program is so very important? Well, very young children that have autism typically struggle to acquire the skills to engage with their peers in social situations. And uh, it's not a skill that they learn naturally. And as they get older, the gap in their social skills tends to increase. And so we're now offering this new program to help children between four and six learn some of those core basic social skills that will help them later in life. And the uh, parental component, uh, Dr. McCrimmon, let's talk about that a bit because, yeah, you could say they'll learn these uh, skills in school, but uh, it really starts at the home, doesn't it? It does. Um, they don't naturally learn the social skills even at school around their, around their other peers. And so this program uh, incorporates parents as part of the process. Uh, we work with the children in one room and help them acquire some skills. And at the same time, at a different room, we work with the parents to tell them uh, all the skills that we're working with the kids. So we try and uh, bring the parents into the whole process. We teach them to be mentors so that they can help their children develop and grow as they continue throughout their life. Social skills, obviously extremely important just to get through life in general. What other kinds of things are you teaching these kids? Uh, well, there's a lot of emotional and behavioral control skills. So uh, like one very important social skill uh, when young, young children are playing is uh, to keep calm when something doesn't go quite the way that you want it to. And that's, that helps with social skills, but it also helps across a whole bunch of other things throughout life. Is this a program of the first of its kind in our nation? Uh, it is. Uh, it was a, based on a program that's designed for teenagers, and then the developers of the program uh, developed this new program to help younger children, and we'll be the first people in Canada that are offering it. So what's the age group, Doctor, that you're focusing on with this, and how many kids will you be helping in our area? Is this specific to the Calgary area right now? Yeah, yeah. Uh, because it's based at the University of Calgary, uh, people have to be able to come on campus for the program. Uh, it's designed for children between the ages of four and six that have at least a little bit of speech to engage with our team. Uh, and we will be working with as many people as we can possibly get. We uh, hear the term autism spectrum quite often in society. What does that include? Uh, it now includes a broader um, characterization of children who struggle with social emotional regulation, uh, struggle to communicate with other people, uh, often uh, are really struggled to when they're in social situations to understand the back and forth flow of that and also present with some other repetitive patterns of behavior. How do you teach something like that, doctor? I mean, it's, you know, it's just sort of a, a natural thing that you pick up as you go through life generally, but when you have to teach it to a young person who might have some learning issues, how, how do you get that message across? 
Yeah, it's a lot of uh, behavioral practice and one-on-one instruction. And so we, uh, it's very, this program is very play-based. We have puppets, we have games, we have toys, and we help children understand the back-and-forth flow of things. So we first model some of the behaviors. We have the children practice those skills with our team. We have the parents come in, and then the parents practice those skills with the children. And then the children and their parents are assigned what we call homework assignments, where they have to go back home, into their community, into their school, and they have to practice these skills so they become embedded with their their natural um, behaviors throughout mm-hmm. their life. I would imagine that their their needs change uh, throughout the different ages that these children uh, pass through. Is that the case? Exactly. And so like the, the social skills and behaviors that young children use are very different than the skills that adolescents or adults use. And so that's why uh, we offer a suite of different programs for people at different ages and stages of their life to help them acquire the specific skills they need as they grow. So if you're starting these kids uh, age four to six, you said through this program, when would they age out or do they just stay in the program for, for many years? No, no, uh, this is like a standalone program. Okay. So anybody that's between four and six takes this program if they're interested. Um, and then that helps them develop some skills and to continue on. Uh, the the first program uh, that was developed, uh, the one that we also run is for 13 to 18-year-olds. And so there's that gap between those two that the parents hopefully have some skills and they can uh, work with other service providers to help their children grow. How long is the program? For example, how many weeks or, or days or hours? Yeah, this particular program for four to six-year-olds is 16 weeks, uh, and the session is one uh, one session per week. Um, we'll figure out which day it's going to be once we start to get interested people and we schedule a program, and it's an hour and a half per session per week. I would imagine it's a huge benefit. The parents must be excited about this, getting their kids involved. So it, it, did you get some feedback from parents? You said this was based on a program out of California. What kind of feedback did you hear from the kids and from the parents in that program? Yeah, the uh, well, we directly have been running the teen program for six years now, um, and everybody who's taken it has had an absolutely amazing experience from what they've told us. Uh, most parents, midway through or towards the end of the program, come, with the, come to us in tears, um, never had an idea that their teens would be able to acquire the skills that they have. The preschool program that's based out of, uh, in L.A., they've been running it for about two years now. Um, because I have connections with that team, they were able to train me so I could run it here. And they said very similar things, that parents had no idea that their children, who before the program had very prominent challenges with social interactions, could even acquire some of the skills that they learned through the program um, and that their children are really starting to thrive. Awesome. I guess, you know, we're starting early, but uh, the, the end goal to have uh, these children be productive in society and, and employed as adults? And, and that's the goal. I mean, that's uh, the vast majority of individuals who provide support to people on the autism spectrum. Our goal is to help them thrive throughout life and to become as contributing and as accepted in society as you possibly can. And so this program is working with young children to try and get them off on that right path. I, I just, I can only imagine what it's like for the parents, right, who, who probably felt that their kids would never really sort of just flow naturally into society. But when you're teaching them about these social skills that most of us would pick up naturally, it's a way to have their kids sort of, you know, be not normal. That's a terrible word to use, but, you know, just kind of fit in properly as they should. Yeah, to be more accepted. Um, and part of I mean, there's there's work with the family and the kids for sure. And then simultaneously, there are a lot of people that are trying to work with broader society to be a little bit more accepting of that whole mm-hmm. thing. One big part of the program, the parental component, is to help parents feel empowered that they can do something to help support their children. A lot of parents... Um, um, feel limited by relying on other people to do all of these things and, and a little bit helpless. And so we're trying to overcome a little bit of that. Where, where can interested uh, parents sign up? 
Uh, well, you can go to our website, uh, which is workland.ucalgary.ca slash assert, A-S-E-R-T, and there's information about our programs there. Or you can look us up on Facebook uh, or Twitter, which is just assert lab group. Well, thanks for your time this morning. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Dr. Adam McCrimmon, psychologist and associate professor, Workland School of Education at the U of C. 909 on the morning news. The numbers from Stats Canada are in and the trend is clear. Canadian women continue to live longer, but the number remains stagnant for men and it has for three years straight. Canadian men remained unchanged from 79.9 years in 2018. For women, life expectancy ticked higher, increasing from 84 to 84.1 years. With his uh, thoughts, we're joined by Dr. Warren Farrell. Dr. Farrell's books have been published in over 50 countries and in 13 languages. They include two award-winning international bestsellers, Why Men Are the Way They Are, plus The Myth of Male Power. His latest book is The Boy Crisis, Why Our Boys Are Struggling and What We Can Do About It. Uh, Good morning, Dr. Farrell. Good morning. I'm looking forward to our talking. Well, this is a topic you're quite familiar with. In fact, something you pegged close to 30 years ago in your book, The Myth of Male Power. So I assume these stats about life expectancy don't surprise you. Uh, not too much, but uh, in, in, a way, in a way, yes. So the difference between men and women has always been um, significant and good, has not always been significant and good. Uh, in 1900, for example, uh, women lived 46 years, uh, men lived 45 on the average. So there was only a one-year difference between males and females. But what has happened in the United States recently is that for the past three years, male life expectancy has gone down. In recorded history, life expectancy has never gone down for any significant demographic um, because the increase in technology and medicine has usually um, made life expectancy expectancy significantly greater. And so, and, and then in Canada, the life expectancies of males have remained the same while women's have gone up. In the United States, women's have remained the same while men's have gone down. And so, um, a, it sounds like it's better to live in Canada. Um, <laughs> And B, it's um, that you can see that in both countries, the, the, what I called, you know, the, when I did the research for the boy crisis, what I ended up calling a boy crisis, was affecting boys and in, in, versus girls in almost every major developed nation. And the key is developed nation. And the 56 largest developed nations. Um, two significant things are happening uh there's per- more the more successful a nation is the more it gives permission for freedom one of those freedoms is the freedom of divorce and another freedom is the freedom for women to raise children uh, without being married and it, it, when women raise children without being married or there's a divorce in divorce situations usually the mother is much much more likely to be the primary parent or the, sometimes the only parent um in in uh, single mother situations, uh, sometimes the single mother is living with a man when she um, has a child, uh, but that relationship lasts on average only four years. And after that four-year period, the ch- children usually lose most contact with their dad. And then, of course, in other cases, they don't even know who their dad is or they barely have seen their dad. And that's where the boy crisis is happening in the area. And and that's where the shortened life expectancy is happening, not only because of drug overdose and um, addiction to uh, video games, addiction to porn, um, depression, suicide. Um, all those things are far more likely to happen, uh, along with 50 other things that would take too long to mention in the show, um, that 
that are likely to happen that are damaging to the developmental progress of, of boys in particular, also to girls. And, but boys are more impacted because they don't have their same-sex role model and they don't have... Um, they, they don't have um, the permission in society to ask for help uh, to cry and then have people pay attention to what their needs are. So the, the numbers, the drop in, in life expectancy, it, it's not due to natural causes or diseases per se. It's, it's a result of the way our society is today. Exactly right. Um, the diseases have gone down. Um, the the overall, you know, the technology to, to cure people who are sick has gotten much better. Um, so the uh, in a given situation, so if you have um, a, a you know a boy who has a father and a mother and a girl who has a father and a mother, um, and um, and they're both involved in a non-abusive way with the children, um, for those for that segment for those segments of the population, life expectancy has gone up. Uh, things have, have overall gotten better. Um, but for the where they've gotten worse is in dad deprivation. So, for example, in the United States, 53% of women under 30 who have children, 53% um, have children without being married um, and, or um, and so that ends up, um, you know, marriage per se, no matter what your position is on marriage, one of the things it does do is it, it keeps um, couples more, um, to, it does keep couples more together. And so uh, when there, where there isn't marriage, um, the couple tends to put its own happiness um, above the raising of the children. And so um, relationships break up, as I said, on an average of after four years. So how do we make a change, uh, Dr. Farrell? Because here's the thing. This has been a long-standing curve to get to where we are today in society and, and what is accepted and what uh, what we now expect to be normal. How do you turn something like that around? I think what what is uh, what I'm working with the White House now to do, and uh, hopefully they will be doing in the next couple of months, um, is to develop um, programs to bring fathers aboard. So historically speaking, for example, um, uh, throughout the world, there's been a, a war. Uh, almost every generation has had its war. And um, for that war, we've, in, you know, we've inspired men to be willing to be disposable as a way of calling themselves a man um, by joining that war. And so, um, so, but now there's much less need for a, a high percentage of men to go to war, and there's less need for boys' old male purpose of being sole breadwinners. Uh, women are handling that um, sharing that role to a much greater degree than ever before. And so the result of that is that the um, that boys have been um, are, are freer, but they're left without the old purposes. And so one of the things I'm talking with the White House about is doing a call for father warriors, W-A-R-R-I-O-R-S, uh, um, and, and for the purpose of saying to boys, we need you as fathers. When children, when families do not have fathers, um, you are uh, the family suffer. So when boys know they're needed, when they're called forth into action, when they're told they, they gain purpose and then they feel like I have some, I have some reason to live, I have a, a, a purpose in the world. And so I feel like we need to expand the whole concept of a male purpose from being disposable, from being willing to kill and be killed, to being willing to love and be loved, and being willing to do that not um, away from home, but doing that at home. And so that's one of the things that um, I've been talking with the Trump administration is um, about in in, um, in the United States. Mm -hmm. well, well, thank you. Yeah, thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you very much.
much Absolutely. for taking the time. We appreciate it. Coming up to 719 on the morning news, and we've been uh, following with our friends on Global News and Alberta Matters series titled Booze Boom. Uh, so far on the morning news, we've looked at brewery tourism in our province. Who would have known a decade ago mm-hmm. that we'd be talking about brewery tourism in our uh, neck of the woods? Uh, cideries, and today, distilleries. Joining us now uh, from Global News Edmonton is Fletcher Kent. Good morning, Fletcher. Good morning. How are you? Good. Thanks for taking the time this morning. Now, it's, it's interesting because, yes, I, I, I've seen the craft uh, uh, beer side of things grow. Ciders were fairly new to me as far as the industry in our province, but the distilleries is one of the most noticeable sectors I've seen, and I guess the numbers uh, back it up. It's starting to anyway. I mean, even if you talk to the distillers themselves, they still all acknowledge that we're a pretty small industry trying to find their way in this province because it's it's really new. I mean, when you look at the numbers... Yes, there's been a boom, but it's still pretty small. But what was it, 2013, there wasn't a single distillery in the entire province. There hadn't been for God knows how long, probably since Seagram's was around. And then then 2014, we got our first. Now there's 37. Wow. So it's it's a pretty big boom. You compare that, though, to the, like you said, the craft beer boom, nowhere near quite that much. I think we got about 123 different uh, breweries right now. So there has been a bit of an explosion in distillers, but maybe not quite to the same speed as beer, perhaps. But it certainly is noticeable. It's pretty interesting to see. So 30 distilleries. Tell us what is happening at the distillery. I mean, are they completely producing their own beverages? In most cases, I'd say, I mean, that's the difference between that, that's the difference between craft and what some of the other places do. I think there are some that do blend. They do a bunch of stuff on their own, and then they bring some some stuff in from other places. But when you're this small, these are these people just love it, right? They there's a passion for it. There's the craft behind it, that kind of idea. So for the most part, they're taking the grain, and they say it's a great place to be because uh, it, this Alberta barley, which is what's used for most of the spirits, it's it's some of the best in the world. I just found this out the other day that. Apparently, 80% of all of the scotch made in Scotland, the only place you can make scotch is Scotland, to call it scotch, all that comes from Alberta. The barley comes from Alberta. So we got the great product. So they say, well, why don't we make it here? Why haven't we been making it here? So they're really excited to be able to do it. And it's, yeah, right from scratch. They take the grains. They... Uh, pardon me, I don't really know all the... I still, I yes. watched them do it, but I still don't really understand it. But you know, they, they ferment it. They, uh, they, they barrel it. They age it. They do it all right here. And it's, it's pretty cool to see. Well, what came first, uh, being in trend when it comes to spirits again, because it seems like the cocktail has come back in trend, mm-hmm. or the fact that uh, our industry has grown? Uh, has uh, Did one uh, cause the other to a certain extent? I, I, it's, it's, that's the chicken and the egg question, yeah. isn't it? Right? <laughs> there isn't really an answer, but I think, personally, I think it sort of works hand in hand. Um, that, yeah, we've had this bit of a culture, uh, the cocktail culture has started to come back, which coupled with rural changes uh, that allowed for these distilleries, sort of pushed the distilleries. But the more the distilleries come around, the more the options that you have for cocktail culture compared to the beer. I mean, it's the easiest thing to do because I think it's a lot of what people can understand. Five, six years ago, um, when we talked about a quality IPA, we thought about Alexander Keats, or maybe 10 years ago. We thought of Alexander Keats, and now no one would think of that. They, they look at something else. They understand the whole beer market a bit better. Now, and I think we're starting to see that more with the distilling. I still don't think, I think that's the biggest challenge for them, actually talking to them, is to try to create some of that understanding, to have them understand why they need to be able to go and maybe spend a little bit more for the craft uh, liquor. People still look at it as seeing something that you mix with something else or uh, that sort of thing. There's a long way to go on that. 
but I think that the two kind of go hand in hand. The more we create, the more we embrace, and the more we embrace, the more we can create. Well, we'll be watching for your feature on Global News. Thanks for joining us, Fletcher. Appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Fletcher Kent is a Global News Edmonton reporter. Chibo on 17th Avenue. If you've been here before, chances are it might be one of your favorites. But if you've not been here for a while, I think you have to stop by because it has changed. Mm-hmm. Aaron Verba is pastry chef here. And, uh, you know, you do a little bit of everything. We've been uh, meeting with Aaron here, spending some time. And we're going to talk about a very special event, a different event you might not expect for Valentine's Day. That's in a second. But tell us about the changes because it's uh, super visual when you get in here, Aaron. So I love the changes that Chibo has recently uh, come upon where uh, we've taken our lower level and actually changed it into a market cafe. Uh, So we're offering uh, great breakfast. You can come in for coffee as we're open at 8 in the morning now. Uh, We're offering great products that you can take home, meal replacements. um, And it's just a really great space to come and gather and be able to have a a nice uh, casual time with great wine and great food and and great friends. Erin, let's talk about some of the events that you're doing here because you're really open opening up this space and and letting the community kind of come in. But first of all, great food for very reasonable prices. If you're eating in here, you can come in and have breakfast. Most people don't even realize that part. Yeah, it's very exciting. And and as you said, we're we're all about building community. So we've had great success with a couple uh, events and classes that we've had. We did a pizza making class. Um, We did cookie decorating at Christmas. And so we're uh, doing the same sort of concept except for Valentine's Day. So you can come with your loved one or, or even a Galentine's or, or uh, uh, you know, a group of friends can come and decorate cookies. Uh, we have the cookies, the icing, the decorations. You can come and have a bite to eat uh, and have a really great night and take those treats home with you to be able to, uh, to enjoy that for the holiday. What I like about this is you're not just going to be sitting across from your date. Make, well, the conversation might be great. I don't know who your date <laughs> is. Uh, but you're, you're being active. And what a great opportunity to connect and, and, and maybe feel like you've actually done something on Valentine's Day. Yeah, and isn't it great to be able to to have uh, an event to do? You know, like uh, so so much. Even between our friends, we're always talking about uh, being able to have those hands-on things where you feel like you're learning something. You feel like you've done something that you wouldn't normally do. And and sometimes you just don't want to take on baking. You know, all of the, all of those things when you're busy and, and worrying about other other things. You know. And sometimes you know, I think as as a family, it's hard to go out and find something to do for Valentine's Day. This is something you can do as a date night, a couple, with the kids, any and all of the above, right? A hundred percent. It's come one, come all, and we make it um, very reasonable, uh, very reasonably priced, and everything's taken care of for you, including the cleanup. So what better than to be able to put it on us, right? Back to the evolution of Chibo, because I am amazed talking with the staff here and walking around, uh, just spending even a few minutes, you realize that it's a place to come if you're a foodie, but it seems like all the staff members here are dyed in the wool foodies. Yeah, we absolutely love what we do. Um, all of us, we, we really try to uh, focus on the education piece, understanding, working with local producers. Um, and and they have their own families, and that is so important to us to support that in the community. Um, 17th Ave and Mount Royal and the whole area that we, that, you know, uh, the Chiba home is in, it's so important that we support each other in that. It's strength in numbers, you know. And so, um, yeah, we absolutely love the building and the company that we work for, and I, I hope that we do a good job of representing that. 
that because it's so important to us. Well, it's been a, a really neat evolution because I think this is the smart way to do it, right? People can come in, they can grab a quick bite, amazing food, but eat quickly and, and run if they need to, or come in and, and buy the products that they need to go home and make the food. And Tim, the general manager, is here with us as well. And is that sort of something that you've focused on as well as is giving people the opportunity to be able to buy the products that you guys use in the restaurant, but maybe go home and try to do it yourself? Yeah, that's exactly it. We want people to be able to take Chiba home with them because um, you know, not everyone has time or to come out for a, you know two or three hours in the evening. They want to be able to just grab some stuff and run home and make a tasty dinner for their family and then put up on the couch and have a glass of wine after taking that pizza home with them. So we want to circle the calendar, and you have uh, two big events for Valentine's Day. If you can break those down for us, Aaron, because we want to make sure we can get in. Yeah, so um, the day before Valentine's on the 13th, we're offering the cookie decorating. That's, uh, that's something that can be found on Eventbrite to get your tickets and your cookie bag. And then the pop-up dinner that we're doing for Valentine's Day on the 14th, you can either call the restaurant directly or email Tim, tim.j at chibocalgary.com, and we can make sure that we get a spot for you reserved for the dinner. And any other time of the year is a great time to come by Chibo as well because you guys have just spectacular food. It is the evolution of Chibo on 17th. Chibo17th.com, 1012 17th Avenue is Southwest. Thanks, guys, for having us in. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Morning News Podcast. You can subscribe to the Morning News Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, give us a five-star rating. See you next time on the Morning News.